So you can think, well, I really feel like I want to respond to this hateful email and I want to, I want to defend myself. But you can ask yourself, well, has that ever worked? Does this person care what I think? You know, what is a better thing? Should I just write a draft of the email and sit on it for 24 That's hours? That's a good advice. Sit on it. And, right. <laughs> and then I actually teach people how to write um, a low-conflict email. Mm. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Preble Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of High Conflict Couples. And I have a conversation with a colleague Virginia Gilbert. Virginia is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she is living in Nashville, and she practices in both North Carolina and California. And she specializes in helping people going through high-conflict divorce, relationship problems with their partner, and attachment trauma. And you can learn more about Virginia in my show notes, and you can also go to her website, virginiagilbertmft.com. And what is high conflict couples? I bet you you can guess. That's right, it's mainly highly reactive couples that are quick to anger, quick to argue, and to blame. And they need more than just the, let's say, the run-of-the-mill relationship advice to solve their problems. Because when destructive emotions are at the heart of the problems in the relationship, man, no amount of effective communication or intimacy building can really fix that. Because if you're part of high conflict couple, you need to get control of your emotions first to stop making things worse, going downhill, escalating. So Virginia and I, we talk about that aspect. And we also talk about the detriment of high conflict divorce that many of you know have experienced and maybe are going through. Okay, before we get on to that conversation, I would want to remind you to visit my website, prepo.com, and you can sign up for my newsletters there. And if you appreciate my content here on my podcast, you can click on the podcast page and then click on support the podcast. I count on you, my listeners, to support my efforts here. And if you are interested, you can support my podcast with a one-time donation or a reoccurring donation. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Prepotoplitsky and also on Twitter. You know, there's sometimes I get a little frustrated that I know there's so many things to help out in the world and to help make a, a beautiful, positive change. And then I realize what I do every day, 
to help people get in touch with their, their authenticity, to help couples find their way back to connection, to decrease the volatility, to increase the appreciation and love. And I think when we do that with ourselves and with people around us, we can change the world. If I could reach the stars, pull one down for you, shine it on my heart so you could see the truth that this love I have inside is everything it seems. But for now I find it's only in my dreams And I can change the world I would be the sunlight in your universe You would think my love was really something good Baby, if I could change the world Mm-hmm Thank you, Eric Clapton. Hey, everybody, we can do it. We can change the world. Just get out there, spread your love and your kindness. Catch yourselves when you're having that conflict and the judgment. Man, we can change the world. I know that's what I want to do. That is my focus. Just spreading more love so that we can make each other's days just better. Okay, everybody, here we go with my conversation with Virginia Gilbert on high-conflict couples and also high-conflict divorce. Mm-hmm, yeah, let's talk about it. Hey, Virginia. Welcome, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here with you. Yeah. It was cool that we met up maybe about a month ago. Yeah. And you solicited just to get to know some therapists in this area because you're new here. I am new. Yeah. I've been here for a few months and another therapist told me that you were a good person to know. And mm. so we, I came over and introduced myself and here I am again. And yeah. yeah. Is there some things that you want people to know a little bit about? you, your background? Yeah. Yeah. So my specialty as a therapist is high conflict divorce, but I also work with a lot of couples. Um, and so conflict in general, and it's, you know, there is a difference between the people who stay together and manage conflict and the people who get divorced and have ongoing conflict, but conflict is always has sort of the same mechanism. I mean, we as therapists, we deal with conflict, but why would you go directly into yeah. high conflict? I'm just curious I just, about oh, that. I think it's something very strange about yeah. me. Wait, somebody's <laughs> got to do it. Good on you. That's yeah. fantastic. Well, but, there's a reason yeah. for that is that I had a really, really apocalyptically horrible divorce. Mm. And this was about 20 years ago. And at the time, now it's sort of in the zeitgeist, like people know what high conflict divorce is. I think mental health professionals are learning about it. But at the time, nobody really understood that a high conflict divorce is very different than just sort of what I call a garden variety divorce. And so 
when my ex-husband and I went to therapy together to co-parent, or even when I went by myself, I found that um, the experience I had in the room, I felt ashamed because I felt like the therapist didn't, that were kind of like flipped out by the level of conflict between us. And that's not a good feeling to see, you know, your therapist looks like a deer in the headlights. Like That's not good. Or even when I'd go myself, I just felt like I got, people didn't really understand my experience and I felt so alone. And I, I just started to realize what I was going through was really different. And I started researching just kind of online and I learned about high conflict divorce and I learned about something called parallel parenting, which is a parenting paradigm for people who really find it difficult to co-parent. And I just kind of figured out how to manage my own divorce on my own. And then I figured out what I would have wanted mm. when I was going through it in a therapist. And and that's, I just started kind of a, a niche, but I, at the time I was also writing for Huffington Post and I wrote an article, uh, I think it was called What Therapists Don't Tell You About Divorcing a High Conflict Personality. And all these people wrote me like from around the country saying like, you're really the first therapist. Now there's a lot of therapists who get it, but just you sort of, you're the first therapist who, who understands what I'm going through. And so I realized I kind of had a weird niche, but I, I think I don't shy away from conflict in the room, which again is something strange about me. I don't know. Did you have a lot of high conflict in your marriage uh, or was it only the divorce part? Or There was definitely conflict in the marriage. It got so much worse hmm. during the divorce. And, um, you know, when you're going through fam the family court system does not help at all. It just makes things so much worse. Um, More adversarial, isn't it? Very adversarial. Yeah. Um, and then I also spent a lot of time working in treatment settings. And I found that when I worked with addicts, addicts tend to have a lot of conflict. Why do you think that? Well, I think it's, I think high conflict, I'll just say high conflict relationships because it's not necessarily divorce and addiction are very similar, like the mechanism that drives both. So you have, let's say an addiction, you have generally, it starts because of attachment trauma, which leads to a chronically dysregulated nervous system, which leads to a reliance on something outside yourself to change the way you feel. And in a high conflict relationship, you, you have attachment trauma because the person who's supposed to be the one who has your back is also, your, you know, giving you pain. So you're chronically dysregulated, but there's a preoccupation with blame, but on if I can just get you, either my ex or my current partner, to change your entire personality so that you think the way I think, then my life will be better. I see that so much that when my high conflict couples, uh, accountability and responsibility is not there at all. And that's like you talk about it, the blame that just goes back and forth at the accusations or you're making me feel this way and so forth. And so that's kind of, is that a telltale sign is when couples are 
blaming each other and not taking accountability and responsibility? Huge. I would say blame is like kind of the most common symptom of, of high conflict when you just see that blame um, and the inability to see how you contribute to the problem. Like you, um, you know, I think people don't see the ways that they invite conflict. They just see what their partner is doing, but it's easier to, to blame because then you don't have to feel the grief of a failed relationship or a relationship that hasn't, you know, is still going on, but it's not what you'd hoped. I think it's easier for a lot of people to feel anger and blame than sadness, grief, shame. Do you, do you experience that people in high conflict relationships also then have a hard time or have more shame? Because for me, when I see shame, people can't take accountability because it's too painful. They're, they feel too much shame and it's too painful. So there's a lot of shame dynamic that goes on in high conflict relationships. Yeah, huge. And I think sometimes people's personality is kind of organized around these rigid beliefs that I, I am right and I have been betrayed or I have been let down. And so to let that go, to to sort of acknowledge you're not right about everything can kind of, I think somebody's position in the world can start to crumble because what does this mean? Now I have to see the ways that I've hurt myself, hurt my partner, hurt my children. Um, yeah, I think that's that's very scary for people. How does narcissism come into that? I mean, how what percentage of the high conflict relationships are there one or two? I mean, I try to stay away from, I'm not a forensic psychologist, so I try to stay away from diagnosing it. I look at behaviors. Okay. So there's always certain behaviors. There's the preoccupation with blame. There's black and white thinking, which, you know, you see with, we would say personality disorders. There's always the black and white thinking. Um, unmanaged emotions, extreme behavior. So there's always some of that to a degree. And yeah, there could be one partner who, you know, could be classically narcissistic. Um, but I think you're also taking people who are going through something so painful. And so any attachment injury they had from early in their life, everything is getting triggered. So you're going to look really bad. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think you can, I think somebody going through a bad divorce can look uh, very narcissistic or borderline and not necessarily really carry that diagnosis, but mm. it can certainly look that way. Yeah. What are the red flags or signs that you would tell people and offer people uh, to watch out in relationship that the potential of high conflict is going to be constant, sustainable, and maybe even what my next question, I don't know if you can put it all together, but in a way of how do people know that that divorce would be a better option than actually mm. staying in that kind of high conflict? So what are the red flags? So the red, yeah. So the red flags I think would be kind of the what I mentioned. So if there's a lot of blame, if somebody has inflexible thinking, meaning there's only one way to solve a problem and it's their way. Um unmanaged emotions, uh, because those traits show that it's just going to be difficult to, to resolve anything. Um, and what was the second question that you asked? How do people know that it would be better or healthier 
to actually split, have a divorce, than to stay in a high comp. I think there's just a certain point where they've tried everything. And, you know, sometimes the kids are saying, you know, it's time. Mm. Um, they just can't do it anymore. But I want to say, and this may not be an easy thing to hear, just getting a divorce, if if it's from a high conflict person, it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything's going to get better. Uh -huh. It can actually mean things are going to get worse for a time. So Especially you- Especially if there's kids involved. Yeah. So you kind of have to have the marathon approach. And I believe, and the people who I see really kind of evolve, it's it becomes, you have to have a spiritual approach to it. You have to see, to get out of the blame and the victimization, you have to see that that this acts as your spiritual teacher hmm. that, and it's about you taking accountability for your own reaction. So even though they're doing things that are, you know, sending you nasty emails or bad mouthing you to the kids, like really awful things, you're going to feel bad, but it doesn't mean that you have to react to the feeling that you have. And the people who can really get that and say, I'm going to evolve through this process because I'm not going to be a slave to my reactions. Those people can really transcend a very difficult divorce, but it's it's hard to do. Then it's freedom, what you're talking about, right? Total it, freedom. Yeah, because those words of being slave to it is... Yeah. Yeah, well, people don't really realize when they let go of looking at some external thing as their hurt and take more responsibility for their own peace of mind, their own freedom. I mean, it's, to me, it's as simple as when I'm driving down Route 9 and there's somebody riding my ass, all I got to do is fucking pull over and, and I got my peace, yeah. you know? And I know that happens with this constant conflict that people have, especially in the divorce process or in the demise of the relationship and this back and forth, especially with text, right? I mean, oh yeah, te text, evil. Yeah, it's, it's it just gives people such a um, a like life. playground for acting out. Yeah, 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 for sure. Do you experience? I mean, you came from working and living in L.A. Was there? Would you say that there's more high conflict um, relationships there because of? lifestyle compared to, I know you've only been here for a while, but you've uh, spent a lot of summers here, you said in Nashville. Yeah. Is it different parts of the country? That's such an interesting question. I would say I, I haven't been here long enough to really give you an intelligent comparison, but LA for sure, because you've got, you know, people with big egos, you've got people making a lot of money, you've got big deal attorneys, um, so yeah, there, there's people out there because of their personalities and because of the money and the stakes, there's a lot more conflict. Um, but I've seen it here too. Hmm. Yeah. What do you offer people to try to transform some of the intensity of their dynamic of high conflict? What, what do you ask? ask of them. Yeah. So, I mean, I do a lot of skill-based um, kind of teaching in my therapy. So I talk to a lot of people about, I try to help them understand what's going on with their nervous system first. 
So I give them tools to regulate their nervous system. So I teach them about mindfulness. I teach them about, um, I try to teach them about curiosity because curiosity is really the antidote to blame. Yeah. Because if I'm, if my nervous system, when I say dysregulated, it just means my emotions are all over the place. I can't self-soothe. So if I'm not able to self-soothe, I'm going to interpret a text that you wrote me. It's probably not going to be 100% the objective truth, but I'm going to believe that my interpretation is 100% the truth. And then uh, I'm going to feel self-righteous that I must then respond and straighten you out. And so this kind of thing just keeps conflict going. So I try to talk to people about give them tools to self-soothe and use a mindfulness approach to, it's not that you're not going to feel pissed off, but you can kind of put those feelings on the shelf and more observe them. So you're not reacting so much because once you're not reacting and you can kind of tolerate that mood state, then you can have, you can really analyze your options and, 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 respond skillfully. So you can think, well, I really feel like I want to respond to this hateful email and I want to, I want to defend myself, but you can ask yourself, well, has that ever worked? Does this person care what I think? You know, what is a better thing? Should I just write a draft of the email and sit on it for 24 That's hours? That's a good advice. Sit on it. And, right. <laughs> and then I actually teach people how to write um, a low conflict email, hmm. which is just basically being a reporter. You're just reporting facts and there's no emotion. There's no sarcasm. It's very hard for people to do. Um, so the people who really are open to learning skills to do both regulate their nervous system and communicate in a way that's more strategic, um, and then also have, find in this experience something that's going to help them personally. Mm. Like it, it's like it's a vehicle for personal transformation. Those people, like I said, they transcend a bad situation, but not a lot of people don't do that, especially if they're holding on to the toxic hope that mm. they can just somehow prove their point or they can win a battle or maybe they can somehow prove they're the better parent or whatever whatever the hope is attached to that's something they can't ever control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure with those tools is also non-defensive listening, mm -hmm. which is really challenging for most people, but mm -hmm. especially for high conflict people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, For sure. Uh, Terry Real, the, um, yeah. the relationship expert, I love his books and his teachings. I remember him saying to to somebody, which I'm sure it doesn't work for everybody, but he would say, get a picture of your child, keep that mm. picture in your pocket and take that out and know your child is watching, watching and listening all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think people lose sight of that because what is your experience of how high conflict relationships or divorces affect children? I mean, it's horrible. They grow up in a war zone. Hmm. And I think, um, especially for people who kind of struggle with uh, 
narcissism or just don't have great boundaries. There's the belief that how they experience their ex is exactly what the child is experiencing. And so I think a lot of times people feel like they need to protect their child. And the only way to protect the child is to have the other person parent exactly the way you know, they think they should be doing it, which just leads to conflict. So that is a, that is a hard one. I see a lot of people doing really, making very unskillful choices because they believe that they're somehow rescuing hmm. their child. I just had a thought, I guess I'm going back to my own experience. My parents got divorced when I was 12 and they, they didn't... Um, they didn't talk to each other for almost 15 years. Wow. Yeah, that was like, you know, people might say, oh, that's kind of cool. It was so stressful for me. You know, I'd be at a, my baseball game, my father would be on the third baseline, wow. my mother would be on the, and they, they didn't talk to each other. My father would uh, drive, wouldn't drive up on the driveway that my mother lived and just drop me off on, on the street in front of it. So I'm wondering, I mean, to me, they were still in conflict. Oh. They were they were stonewalling. They were totally. withdrawing. They, you know, silent treatment. So I guess I want to put out and ask you too. That's still high conflict, isn't it? When people are are stonewalling each other in that way. It is. Although I will say that I think that's better. Yeah, than, I would agree. Than uh, blame you know, and name calling and yelling. Yeah, and, yeah, but. Well, I'll ask you what 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 was that like growing up with that? I mean, did you feel like you couldn't talk to I felt I felt that I had to take care of both of them. Oh my god. Yeah. You know, like both of them couldn't adult and so therefore I had to be the one that could soothe their stress or their anxiety. So it was always going back and forth between even if they were in the same the same proximity of doing that. Um, so, well, it was good training to become a therapist, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was great. It, and and you know, the, I, I told this before on the podcast, but I'll say it again: is the sad part about that for me was my father. Uh, he reconciled the way he was uh, with my mother at my sister's wedding. So, fifteen years later, and literally to the point where. He gave my stepfather um, the split of the father-daughter dance. It was so beautiful. Everybody was crying because they knew of the history and wow. And actually, uh, they kissed each other. You know, when my father came back to my sister, and then for a uh, six months to maybe nine months after that, they were all friends. And then my father got cancer and died a few weeks oh, later. Oh no! All this fucking wasted uh, years, you know, of that. Well, and you wonder holding on to that anger for so many exactly. years. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Wow. Yeah. So what do you think it was that allowed him to get past it? Well, I'm gonna take credit for it because <laughs> what I think what allowed me, my father said he wouldn't walk down the aisle with with as if my stepfather walked down the aisle with my mother who's been married at that time for like fifteen years or so. And uh, my sister got really upset. The three of us were at dinner and I think I was um I was about 28 at the time. And so my sister left the restaurant crying. And I put my big boy, big 
big boy pants on and, and looked at my father and said, you're going to fucking show up at that wedding. You are not going to make any kind of scene. You're going to make my sister proud. You're going to make your daughter proud and everybody proud. And he, he stepped up to it. Wow. So I'm sure I was a catalyst, you know, in that way. Um, uh, and maybe yeah. he was just tired of being so angry. I would hope that in some way. Yeah, to yeah. finally just let that pain, that holding of of all of that resentment or whatever it was or the guilt and and yeah. But, I, so I want to ask you too, is there in your family, in your extended family, like going back generations, is there a history of... Is a history of grudges uh, and uh, uh, cutting some family yes. members out. Right. Yes, which yeah. I find is the case mm -hmm. when you do, like if you do a biopsychosocial assessment on people, there's always at least one party has a history of exactly the same thing, like grudges, emotional cutoff. Yeah. Yeah. Generational trauma. Sure. Right. Yeah. I don't remember, I don't remember a lot of like the volatility of conflict, but I just remember a lot of the silent treatment mm. or, oh, Uncle S isn't allowed to come over the house now? Oh, we're not talking to Uncle Harry anymore? Mm. <laughs> oh, you know, things like that. And, yeah. and and I had some of that in my life too, just about um, loyalty and I held grudges. My, my wife says, because my moon is in Scorpio. <laughs> I'll take that, you know, instead. But I had to learn and continue to learn to uh, to let go of some of that. I believe it is generational trauma yeah. in, that, in that way. The way to learn how to deal in conflict is to just cut it off. So of course, being a therapist, that really healed in some ways. Yeah. It was like, you know, I got to get my ass home and do the same thing that I'm telling people to do Yeah, is to address it, deal with it. And some of it, as you said earlier, I like to say it's like being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people aren't able to tolerate that uncomfortableness especially if the pain is about maybe they're part of it. Mm -hmm. So they got to shoot it back to the other person, that hot potato, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to give it to you and blame. No, you're the one that did it. Now I'm righteous. I feel better because mm -hmm. I'm not feeling the pain of my own, my own behavior. Yeah. And I think, but I think that's about unprocessed grief, mm. right? It's like, I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, the demise of something that I'd hoped for, and so I'm just going to stay angry. But then if you never process the grief, you just, you know, you just get more and more invested in the anger. And I think for a lot of people, maybe for your father, it's hard to give up because how many years have I spent being so pissed off? Yeah. When you're dealing with high conflict, let's say couples that are, are, are divorcing, how do you, do you deal with them separately? As opposed to, you know, the danger of having it yeah. blow up in a, in a session together. I'm glad you asked me that question because when I, uh, so when we first started talking, I mentioned that my ex-husband and I went briefly to a therapist for co-parenting. And um, there was one session that was so volatile and I felt so unsafe in the room. And I went back on my own not with my ex, but I went back on my own to this therapist and I said, why did you let that continue? And he said, well, I've just learned, you know, from doing this for years, like you can't really 
stop people's anger. And I remember thinking, wow, hmm. yes, you can. And so I'm, I really have to take control in the room. Um, and when I say the room, and I'm mostly telehealth now, so it's the Zoom room. But I tell people there's like rules. And I say, I want to give you guys, if, if I let you act out in session the way you are when you're not here, why are you going to waste your money? Mm -hmm. I don't want you to have the same experience. So therefore, I'm going to be really directive. And so I just lay out the ground rules. You can't yell, you can't talk, one person talks at a time. And if I see somebody getting heated, I'm going to ask you to step out of the Zoom room and I'll just talk to the other person and then I'll bring you back in. And so sometimes I'll do literally like, you know, 15 minutes with one, 15 minutes with the other, and then bring them back in together. And sometimes I'll have to do individual sessions with people until they can tolerate being back together. And sometimes that's actually better. So do you find Zoom to be, in this instance, to be a better yes. medium? for the divorce people, they right. don't want to be in the room together. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah. 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 And and I'm sure it's also challenging because they got to look directly at the, the person too and the right to Zoom because it's not like on a side view. It's well, no, direct. but they can actually, uh, you know, take their video off. Ah. I've had people mm -hmm. do that who mm -hmm. get like so disregarded. And it's oh, fine. If you need right. to do that, go ahead. Yeah. So what is your experience? I know for me, I've had, I've had several people get up and walk out mm -hmm. it, and in some way it's like, okay, they're taking care of themselves, but I used to go after Call them. Chase after yeah. <laughs> and I used to spend, you know, time to, I, I don't do that no. at all anymore. Uh, I want them to regulate and come back in. And usually that, that they do that. They come back yeah. in and say, I'm sorry, I had to do that apologize that I left as opposed to me coddling them in some way and regulating. So, yeah, well, zoom, I think prevents you from doing <laughs> that, but yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't chase after them. No. Wow. Yeah. That's a, it's an interesting, I mean, there's so, do you find over the last few years of with COVID and, people being on top of each other and the stress levels, people's stress levels in their lives are very influential to, of course, how they're um, approaching and dealing with one of the biggest stresses when relationship demise happens. I, I think there's so much uncertainty for people. So yeah, I think I saw a lot of people come to therapy during COVID. I saw a lot of people break up during COVID. Um, but I just think the state of the world in general, it's a very divisive world. It's, I think, um, it's hard to have a conversation that doesn't get very binary yeah. about big issues. Like it's hard for people to kind of embrace nuance. And as we were saying, uncertainty, but really that's what life is. There's so little that we can really control. And if you can sort of yeah, get comfortable with, I, I ultimately don't have control over anything except for my own actions. Mm. Um, and this constant conclusion, like you said, people, the, the binary conversations, we're constantly concluding mm -hmm. somebody says something and all of a sudden we put them in a box mm -hmm. um, or, you know, we um, write them off, mm -hmm. cancel them, 
Yeah. Instead of tolerating, like you say, the nuances and especially being more curious and interested. Why are you thinking that way? Where did you come up with that thought process or that value system? Yeah. yeah. And I find that if people can really come from a place of curiosity, um, that they can, well, I think a few things can happen. You can, you can recognize that the story you are telling yourself is not necessarily a hundred percent the truth. And you can see the humanity in the other person and you can see there's just other scenarios so things don't have to be so binary, but people are very attached to their version of the truth. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot too recently is around self-esteem. Uh, when people lack self-esteem, I think one aspect that they lack is uh, the understanding of being fallible and having high regard for that fallibility also at the same time. So to me, that's what self-esteem is. Self-esteem is not the self-confident aspect of me walking in the world with no mm -hmm. faults. It's actually recognizing my faults and fallibilities, mm. but having high regard for who I am, even though mm -hmm. I have that. And I think that we then lack that in another person. Mm, we, we lack yes. the fallibilities that they're a human being with their faults, but I'm going to still hold you in high regard because I also see another part of you. I married you. I was in relationship with you. You, you're the parent of my child. Why they lose sight of that regard? Yeah, you know? and maybe part of that is sort of what we're fed growing up about you know the the perfect person out there, and yeah, just sort of. But that's good object relations, right? It's it's like recognizing that you know you can still have a good parent who also at times lets you down. You can still have a good enough partner who also at times lets you down. Mm -hmm. I think that's just growing up to a degree. Is there a couple offerings that you would offer people that are either in a relationship that's high conflict or going through a divorce of some things that they can really, because I think that most people get so overwhelmed in that and that they they think that they've tried many things, but they're not really focusing on a consistent, um, a consistent discipline in some mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. yeah. What would some of those things? Yeah. Be? So I think the most important thing is to have a mindfulness practice, and that can be. There's all kinds of different ways to have a mindfulness practice, but basically what I mean by it is an awareness of what what is happening right now in the moment. What am I feeling right now? And then developing and then being able to radically accept, I don't like my circumstances, but there's certain circumstances I can't control. What are the options available to me? And then, you know, developing tools to learn how to self-soothe and incorporating strategies to skillfully communicate with a difficult person. And don't keep your focus on, you know, the communication isn't successful if they're still, if they still respond to me in a jerky way. No, it's about, are you communicating in as low drama a way as you can? It really has to be shifting the focus of, or the locus of control from the other person to yourself. Yeah, people focusing on how they send out their communication, not how it's received. They have no control of how that's received. Yeah. 
But if they're sending it, I call it in a certain alignment, you mm -hmm. know, truth, honesty, compassion. If I send it out that way and it's received adversely, okay, take a quick mirror. If I send it out the way I think, I gotta let them have their experience, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the freedom part. Yes. Right. The, the part that spiritual practice, knowing that I'm walking and doing my alignment the best that I can, I'm the only one that can can uh, be responsible for that, not have somebody else be responsible for throwing me off. Yeah. Or just ask yourself, why is it so important to me what my ex thinks? Mm. Why is it even really my business? Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Virginia. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah, cool. And thanks for wearing uh, Rainbow's uh, creation that you yes. got on. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Can I say what it, what it yeah, is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one thing that I didn't realize when I came to meet you was that your wife is the creator of Artsy Goddess Studios. Yeah. And when I... The, like the first week, I think that I moved to Asheville, I was at Marquee and somebody was selling this amazing, crazy chartreuse felt jacket with like a red embroidered flower. And I got that and, and I just recognized the label and I was in another store and I picked up what I'm wearing today, which is like a black kind of smock shirt. Then, then realized it was your wife. Who How'd you is, realize that? Well, I saw it on your website. Ah. Okay, yeah. Um, and I was like, wow, another reason why uh, we had such a good conversation is mm -hmm. that, that somewhere I was feeling that you're married to this woman who designs these clothes <laughs> that I really like. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Relationships. Let's talk about it is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more about licensed counselor Prebo Teplitsky, visit prebo.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling or therapy, medical advice, diagnosis or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice.